You ever been put to the question? What question? I don't know. Any question. Ever been put to the question where it just demands some kind of response? Where it's just like you know, you know that since this question has happened or this scenario has happened that you've got to choose to go one direction or another. You've got to do something with it. Ever been put to the question? A little over two years ago, I was really put to the question. In my own life, where I feel like um, God was really beginning to speak um, to me and and to Jen more than probably more than He ever has. It was uh, probably the most audible and spiritual, spiritually terrifying God encounter I've ever had in my life. And and here's essentially what I heard, necessarily what God said, but here's what I heard, Brandon. Now that you seem, you feel like you've arrived to where you kind of always wanted to be, would you, are, you, are you willing to lay that down if that means, if that's what it takes to follow me? Are you willing to do that? Now that you've gotten to a place or at least you're on the track to or you're, you're kind of heading in the direction where it seems like everyone said you're supposed to go and where you've always kind of wanted to go and you don't... Um, are you willing to walk away from it and follow me? That's not really what he said. Specifically for me, what he said was this. He said, serve the poor. And that scared the fire out of me because I didn't really know how to do that. I didn't really care about that a lot. But God gave a really unique gift. I see as a gift now that he made that... Um, that question, he kind of put me, it was a statement that I heard as a question, <laughs> um, that uh, he, he gave the gift of making it very apparent that if he, um, if I didn't figure out what that was, what that meant and what I was supposed to do, the guy made it very apparent that what would happen is it would be the most obviously intentional act of disobedience I would have ever done in my life. And so what happened is it quickly went from just maybe a moral dilemma to a moral imperative. And which it was kind of that moment where I felt like God was saying, if you, if you don't want to, then you need to know that I'm just going to take my hand off you. Okay, so pretty big dilemma. Huh. And so we really didn't know what to do. And so we bought a grill. We did. And we started serving those in need. It was this grill, actually. It's really beat up. Notice this side, it doesn't have a frame anymore. Um, I don't think we, we ever cleaned this grill. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Jerry's like, dang it, yeah, we clean it all the time. Um, you know, it's weird to say because I know it wasn't this grill. I know, I know it was the movement of God and, and a, something really bigger than that. But honestly, I can tell you this, that this grill changed my life. For those of you who don't know, this is the grill. This is the first thing our church ever bought. And the only thing it's ever done on it is grill hamburgers for those who don't have food. It's changed my life. It's changed some of you too, hasn't it? I should have gave out tissues. Here's what I learned through this experience. I'll just leave the girl here for a while. Here's what I learned 
over the last couple of years. And, and I don't tell you this because I, you know, all we have is our story sometimes, which is a pretty good thing. Here's what I learned. If you have a pen, just write this down because here's really the only point today. It's a long point. <laughs> so write this down. Write this thought. When we're put to the question and when we choose to follow, our response sets off a series of events. I'll repeat it. Our response sets off a series of events so that no matter what happens, no matter how deep our descent, you will see Jesus there. When you're put to the question and when we choose to follow, our response sets off a series of events that no matter what happens, no matter how deep the descent, the wheels fall off, it doesn't matter what direction ends up, all of this stuff, no matter how deep the descent, we will always see Jesus there. As my wife likes to put it, she says, there is a 0% chance you will not find Jesus there. He'll be there. So we find ourselves in the book of Acts. Uh, we've been studying the book of Acts, for those of you who maybe, might be new. And um, it's really a great story of the early church and how it started out. And we're kind of wrapping up the story of Stephen. And Stephen is introduced in, um, I think, Acts, you know, you go back to Acts 6, not 5. Stephen introduced in Acts 6. So Stephen is mentioned only 13 times in the Bible, all right? Only 13 times in the Bible. Uh, some in 6, finished out in 7. Uh, he's referenced, I think, one other time. But this story is really intertwined in the fabric throughout Scripture. It's just an amazing part of the scattering of the church that has become today what? what we experience, and we are a part of it. You first see uh, Stephen um, being ordained, really, at, with the first group of deacons of the early church. You know, the apostles had so much going on, they couldn't, they couldn't serve the body, and so they chose these men, specifically named Stephen, uh, and, and they anointed them, and they commissioned them, and they commissioned them to serve, and they commissioned them to go out and, and, and to help, and they... Scripture tells us then that he also went out and was began to speak powerfully in, in the Holy Spirit, really began to speak and teach about Jesus, and um, uh, so much so uh, that he kind of ticked guys off. Like all these teachers of the law were confronted by him, and, and they were threatened by him. But verse 10 of chapter 6 says, But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And so they decided you know, to falsely accuse Stephen. And in verse 11, it says that they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard Stephen speaks blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. And they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against his holy place and against the law. And then a couple of weeks ago, we saw Matthew picked up in chapter 7 where he stood before the Sanhedrin. He's being accused of these huge things. What do you think that is? Am I stepping on something? Okay. He was being accused of these huge things, and they said, Well, what do you, what do you say about this, Stephen? Have, 
you know, you're accused of these things. What do you have to say? And he, and he, began, he began to just talk. And he went through this history and this lineage of the nation of Israel that Matthew went through. And he told the stories of how God constantly delivered them, even though they chose not to follow. And God constantly, um, you know, was with them and they refused and they rejected him. And then he brought them back all the way from Abraham to Jacob to Joseph to Moses to, to, to Joshua to David and Solomon all the way through. And it was one of those moments where you could just read and it just seems like it's escalating. You remember Matthew was teaching it and it was just kind of escalating and it finally gets to the point where it's kind of like you step back and go, wow, that just happened. <laughs> and in verse 51 of Acts 7, Stephen finally said, you stiff necked people. Your hearts or ears or hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Verse 52, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They've been killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. Verse 53, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen really confronted him. I wonder if it was one of those moments like you just kind of roll a grenade out of the ta- on the table and you kind of go, you know that silent, awkward moment where you're like, How's this going to land? And through these statements, they honestly, they were put to the question. The Sanhedrin at that moment was put to the question, how are you going to respond to what is being said? These men who just felt like they were following God with everything they had, they thought they were and they were trying to. They were trying to do everything they thought they were supposed to do. There was some pride that seeped in and some other things, of course. But they were trying to protect God. And they were put to the question, what do we do now? And it was the same question that they asked earlier when they dealt with Peter and John in Acts 4, verse 16. When it just said, what are we going to do with these men? How do we respond to this thing? Do we stop and consider as they did with Peter in Acts 4? Do they trust God? Do they take the words? Remember when the, when the one smart guy stood up and he said in Acts 5, 38, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Speaking of Peter and John, it said, let them go for if their purpose or activity is of human origin it will fail but if it's from god he's like consider this guys wait a minute if we're being put to the question and it's really from god the one who spoke and it was if it's from god you'll not be able to stop these men you'll only find yourself fighting against god so we pick up today in acts chapter 7 verse 54 and we see how they responded and i'll give it away they killed him they killed him they decided that god wasn't big enough to defend himself they decided that in their anger it was okay to take justice into their own hands stephen became the first martyr of christianity Verse 54. Let me just kind of teach through this scripture and then we'll pull a couple things out of it, okay? When they heard this, they were furious. That word furious in the Greek means cut to the quick. 
literally cut to the heart. This was just, this hit him. This hit him as deep as it could hit anyone. It cut him to the quick. This word is only used one other time in scripture, and it's the exact same word that was used to describe how they felt when Peter and John did it. When they made, you know, a different decision. It cut them to the quick. And they gnashed their teeth at him. So you have this image. I I could see their fists beginning to clench. I could see the tension in their face and maybe their nostrils beginning to flare and their teeth began to gnash. And you could just see them as if these people were just about to pounce. He stepped back. It was like, rolled the grenade. It was like, they were about to pounce on him. And then picture this, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up, and the phrase looked up literally means to gaze intently, to stare. He fixed his eyes, not on them, he fixed his eyes up to heaven, and it says he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In the middle of this moment, when people were about to pounce him like he's never been pounced on before, he saw Jesus. I think it's interesting. It says he saw him because he was full of the Holy Spirit. The word full means to be ready. So it's saying he was ready because he was in the Spirit. And he just looked up. I think he was smiling. I wonder if he's just And he goes, verse 56, look. The word look means behold. It's the same word that John used when Jesus showed up, when he was baptizing, when he said, behold, this is the one I've been speaking of. And Stephen says, look, I see heaven open up. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Isn't this a strangely peaceful moment for him? At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. In verse 59, while they were still stoning him, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. There's a couple things I think we need to point out from, from this scripture. The first thing that comes to my mind is the reality that each one of us here today, we all have a history. We all have pains in our lives and things that have happened to us. We have experiences, we have wounds, we have victories, but we have, we have this history, we have this story. And many times when we are put to the question, what we've experienced in the past impact greatly whether or not and how we follow today. Maybe that's just little things, maybe that's in just really, really big things, right? Right? Maybe it's big things that seem little and it's little things that seem big. 
And sometimes we, we may hesitate or we're fearful because of our accusers, those who are, we're afraid of, what they might think, what they might do, what they might say, what they have done. And then sometimes it's just really because of us and we're, we're so wounded or we're hurt or we're scared and we hold ourselves back. But either way, this history truly impacts somehow our eagerness in our ability, and many times even our desire, you know, in that moment to respond. And I just think part of the journey and part of the challenge is recognizing where we are and knowing that it does impact it. All right? But two quick lessons I think out of the scripture that hit, hit me was, the first one is that when we're put to the question, we just can't allow our past to determine our future. We just can't. You know, there's some things in life really worth fighting for. And when you think about your past, we think about all these experiences. And, and you know what? We honestly, we also should be considering just yesterday. But we just have to, if we believe in what Jesus taught us, we have to be able to take that and look towards what is tomorrow and what is to years down the road, and what is to years beyond that. We need to be able to look at our marriages, and our lives, and our children, and our grandchildren, and the legacies we're creating, and everything out here. And we have to look at uh, living in Christ out here, and we have to see that, and we have to say, I have to respond to this question based on what is here, not on what is here. I have to find my value and my confidence and my strength in Christ because of what is here, not because of what is here. Do you notice in verse 58, there's a young man named Saul holding their coats. It paints this picture of a guy sitting back as, stone as, being, as Stephen is being stoned. And he's, he's like, yeah, hey, I'll hold your coats. Go ahead. Go ahead. And it's this guy named Saul that later in Acts 8, the very next verse says, and Saul approved of their killing him. He had the authority and the commission to allow this to happen. And he just stood back and he watched it and he approved of it. This terrible man named Saul. We can't allow our past to keep us from our future. This is the same Saul that became Paul. It's the same Saul that became Paul and wrote over half the books of the New Testament. The same Paul that Jesus got a hold of and sent him on three missionary journeys that launched the New Testament church as we know it today. It's the same Paul whose ministry was to bring Jesus to the Gentiles. The non-Jewish folks like me. He himself called himself chief among sinners. And he didn't allow his past to impact his future. Here's what he wrote in Philippians 3.12. He says, not that I have already attained all of this. You ever feel that way in your spiritual journey? Not that I have already attained it or if I have already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. The dude that stood back and held the coats while they killed the first Christian martyr. 
He says, I have decided I will press on no matter what has happened. I will take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, this. But one thing I do know, he says, Philippians 3, 12, 13, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. It's one of the greatest gifts we have in Christ that we get to do that. You see the bumper stickers, whenever Satan reminds me of my past, I remind him of his future. And we just need to be reminded of our future. And when Saul was put into question later, he was put into question in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus, he followed. And then later, Paul had to give up everything that he had in his faith. When he had to start completely over, he had to make new friends. Because they didn't like him anymore. You know, he became a joke to his old buddies when he was in prison for his faith. He saw Jesus. See, when we're put to the question and when we choose to follow, our response sets off a series of events so that no matter what happens, no, ma- no matter how far our descent, we will always see Jesus there. Second thought from this is somehow, somewhere, for some reason, God can redeem any situation. Anything. Absolutely anything. He can take the most awful, horrible, terrible thing you've ever seen or heard of in your life and he can redeem it. He can restore it. He can do this. Any situation, he's capable of working for good, no matter how bad it seems. Anyone find it interesting in this scripture? Did you catch, I mean, you caught this, but did you really think about it, that he prayed for his attackers? Is that just the weirdest thing you've ever heard in your life? That in that moment, it reminds me of Jesus. (laughs) I wonder if he just had a bracelet. What would Jesus do? Oh, yeah. This was the last thing he did. Here's the thing that strikes me on this. How significant is it that while Stephen is still praying for his adversaries, there's only one adversary named in that scripture, and it was Saul. I wonder, I was just wondering, how significant is it that in his last moment, filled with the Holy Spirit, he's praying for Saul? And I just thought, God, you answered his prayer. Augustine said this, the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. Ah, the thread of God's amazing design is so thick. It's so thick. Here's the deal. For me, the most significant part of the scripture is from our original point. Is that in Stephen's greatest moment of need, he saw Jesus. Wouldn't that be nice? I think that I think that this was a gift that, that he was saying, Stephen, I'm, I'm here. I'm with you. And you know, some of us have been waiting a really, really long time to see God do something supernatural in our lives. And we don't like to talk about it much, but some of us, we just feel like we're kind of in this place where it seems like God is just moving in everybody else's life except ours. And some of us are kind of sitting back and we're just waiting for God to just supernaturally move and heal our marriages in ways that we just need. And and we're just needing him to just, you know, 
intervene and give us the faith so that we would have the strength to make the decisions we know we need to make. And we're just, we're kind of hungry for it. We can't figure out. It just feels like, it feels like we're almost being passed by and we just feel powerless. There are times we feel just really pressed down under the weight of life, just hoping to get a glimpse of Jesus in the middle of our chaos, in the middle of our pain. Yet we fail to see, fail to recognize that seeing Jesus in these moments is often preceded by choosing Jesus in the moments beforehand. That's what I see in this scripture. See, he's always there. There's just this thing called obedience that literally seems to unlock our ability to see him in his presence. But too often when we're put to the question, especially in the little things, we fail to follow. See, I I really believe this. There's a whole bunch of stuff God has said we should live by. And and probably 95% of it, you and I don't even know what it is. Would you admit that? But we're so scared of not doing what we don't know we're supposed to do that we're just kind of in this bondage and afraid to figure out what it actually is. And we're so guilty about the things we're not doing that we don't even know for sure we're not supposed to do yet. That we're distracted from the things that we know God said to do. I just really believe God says, do this. Whatever I've revealed to you, just do that. Whatever it is, whatever question, whatever moment, whatever it is you're struggling right now, you're saying, God, I need you in the middle of this financial situation. Is there something that he said, well, just do this. And follow, you know, this is what you need to do. God, I really need you in my marriage right now. Well, I just need you to lay down your pride and love your, your wife like Christ loved the church. But that's too hard. You see, Stephen had already died way before they stoned him. He died to himself and he chose life. And way before he stood in front of the Sanhedrin, he said, Jesus, I'm going to choose your ways, whatever they are. He he didn't go before the Sanhedrin and thinking, okay, if they're going to start throwing rocks at me, um, am I going to get out of there? Am I going to just jet? Am I going to take it? Am I going to keep standing boldly? What am I going to do? I just think in advance, he said, whatever it is, God, I'm just going to follow you and I'm going to speak it boldly. Whatever they are, because you consider me precious in your sight, Jesus, I consider you precious in mine. Because you are worthy of worship, you are worthy of my complete devotion, and you are worthy of my obedience even to death. I think that's what he did. And because Jesus was with him in the middle of this pain, because in the middle of the most terrible moment that you could even imagine, he was even able to find the strength to pray for his enemy. It was a natural outpouring of Jesus in his life that modeled Jesus so much that not only did he see him, but he intuitively did the same things Jesus did when he was dying on the cross. And in this moment of his greatest need, he saw Christ and he was right there with him and he wasn't alone. And I think he smiled 
And he said, what do you know? And the Bible says he felt, fell asleep. In that, Stephen died at peace with God. Stephen died at peace with himself. And I think Stephen even died at peace with the world. He just fell asleep, it says, in peace. You see, by showing us how to die, Stephen really showed us how to live. But I think it's just so difficult. It's so strange to me that sometimes it seems like it would be easier to just die than it actually is to live. You ever notice that? It's just so hard every day to live for you, God. When it means we have to lay down our pride or the way we've always done it, or when it means we have to get out of our comfort zone to share hope, when it means we have to give our time or, oh, God forbid, some of our money, when it means we're expected to actually open the Bible and give time to God to learn about Him and the life He wants us to live, when it means we have to just humble ourselves and give our lives to Christ, when it means we actually have to do what Jesus said and get baptized humble ourselves before people, and just let us be lowered into water and out, symbolizing that we are identifying ourselves with the body, with with Jesus Christ himself who did that so many years ago so that he could identify himself with us. And we say, God, that's a lot to ask. When it means we have to live on mission, when it means we have to live sacrificially as Christ followers, when it means these things, it's just too hard, isn't it? Just throw stones. God, aren't you asking a little much of me? And then we wonder, God, why didn't you show up? Why couldn't I see you when I needed you the most? See, when we're put to the question, and when we choose to follow, our response sets off a series of events so that no matter what happens, no matter how far I descent, you will always see Jesus there. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. The same Saul who became Paul put it this way. We are hard-pressed on every side. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Let's pray.